Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you, about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 866-420-5330 or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Today's guest says that grief is a personal opportunity that can evolve into a hard-won blessing. At first blush, I'm sure that to many, that sounds like a bit of a stretch, but we'll find out more in just a minute. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. I am very pleased to introduce to you our guest today, Rabbi Ben Kamen. He is nationally known as a clergyman, teacher, counselor, and award-winning author. And I am going to get him to tell us a little bit about uh, some of his writings that you can find online because they are wonderful. He is here with us today, however, to discuss his latest book, which is entitled The Blessing of Sorrow, Turning Grief into Healing. Rabbi Kamen, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you, Pamela. It's a, a great honor to to be here, and of course, this this topic is very important to all of us. And I'm particularly delighted to be able to speak with you and with your audience. Well, you have said that working with families who are dealing with the quite frankly inevitability of grief is is a significant part of your practice. You also come to this experience having had your own. So let's start there. What were you experiencing uh, in terms of your own uh, grief, exposure to grief as you were growing up? Yes, thank you. The irony is that I actually never attended a funeral until I was 23 years old, and that was during the time I was in rabbinic graduate school, because the, the irony was that our family is from Israel originally, and I was born there, and my parents and others, and uh, my mom and dad brought me, as the only child at that time, to the States, 1962, to Cincinnati, Ohio. And over the years, I remember, because I was a, I was a kid at that particular time, we would, it, every once in a while, get these ominous uh, and just a painful aerogram letters. Some folks may remember the aerogram, um, and we would find out that way. What is that? that? So what, and so, what is the aerogram? Okay. Well, it, it was a form of letter writing for international letters. Okay. That was one sheet, and you folded it over, you wrote on it, and you folded it over in a way that would you become a, its own envelope. Ah, Okay. And at that time, that was very advanced, <laughs> very interesting. <laughs> so I also would always check the mailbox because I, I you know, I, I was close with all my elders in Israel. And so, but we only found out that somebody had died. And I, I usually knew of these people when one of these aerograms came along to tell us that. And it already had happened a week or two prior. So geographically, I was separated from grieving because of the nature of the of the circumstance. So to myself, to me, it's something, it's an irony that here I am, you know, 50 years later, 
40 years in the Rapids with a, uh, an emotional specialty concerning bereavement. And I myself was completely ill-prepared for this. When I, for, this was the death of my father when I was 23, uh, two younger siblings. Because it was his death. His death was uh, sudden. He was quite young, forty-five, mm. uh, and, it, and, and so nobody had any real experience or notion of. My my mother did, uh, and, uh, and she was only forty-two years old, a young widow. And this happens to a lot of folks, but it happened to us. So I think some of the things that I experienced later, when my father died, and I was twenty-three really informed me about some of the deficiencies of grief in terms of the way Americans grieve or don't grieve. And I still remember things happening during the Shiva, for example, uh, other things that occurred, some of the uh, well-meaning but ultimately vacuous declarations of the rabbi who was our congregational rabbi. I loved him. I bless his memory. But now, many, many years later, I hope a little wiser, just a, a touch jaded, but very committed to this. I remember some of the stuff he did and said was just wrote. He made a couple mistakes about people's names, including my father's name. Oh, my. And he would use, when he used my name. And he really didn't know. I mean, I, I just remember this in terms of gathering information. There's no critical judgment here. But I was, it was so profound, both the pain and the passage that I experienced, as well, of course, as the rest of our family, that I think it left an imprint on me that this is something I really care about. And it certainly proved to be the case because I've been doing this for work for a long time. I'm semi-retired now, and I, I, I work extensively as a volunteer in a number of hospices in the San Diego area. And there's nothing more tender and nothing more revealing of the journey of life. Our, um, the tenderness that we experience that's both achy and helpful just moved me. And I, I think that this is really a very important, if not the most important area that uh, clergy rabbis are involved in, but I actually think, you'll forgive me, I'm rather outspoken about it, only because I care. I don't think a lot of uh, people in this profession uh, view it that way because it's not public, generally. It's not a, it's not mm -hmm. a, a big drama uh, at the synagogue building. It's not High Holy Days. It's, uh, in other words, it's, it's much more a private matter than a public event. And so, in some ways, we might be overlooking some things or being, or being less focused. Not one congregant I've ever had probably remembers any of what my sermons were about. But congregants whose parents, grandparents, and even children that I have helped bury, they didn't forget what I said. So this is a really big deal. And I'm not saying the clergy in general don't understand that. I, they do. These are hardworking people, they're good people, but this is even a bigger deal than that because this is when you actually say things or say things that aren't so great that they remember for the rest of their time on this earth. 
you know, you you just mentioned um, a couple of things that I just want to draw attention to. The first time you actually were physically at a funeral was the funeral of your father, and you were 23. So, I mean, that in so many ways is trial by fire. I mean, that's a huge deal on all kinds of Mm levels. I mean, it's your father, and that was your first. Well, thank you. There are two levels to that, uh, in giving you a full answer. First of all, I, I was completely ill-equipped to deal with it. There was no awareness uh, in my family, and generally much less awareness at that time of clinical intervention following such a particularly tragic death. And, you know, I mean, he, he just was a very young man and, and full of dreams and vision, and but he was very afflicted inside, so he... He died of a massive heart attack while playing handball. Oh, my. So I, I was so numb. And I, the, the thing that I remember, I, I couldn't stop talking about it when I resumed going back to my classes. Uh, it was the uh, second or third year of rabbinical school for me. It's a five-year program. And I realized after a while, yeah, people, people, my, my classmates, they get it already. They get it. And there's no need for me to continue to wax about it and how painful it is and how I know he'll never come back and that's because I was because of the lack of experience or even discussions or education about grief and bereavement and the fact that somebody actually dies that you love so much and that's it uh, we're, we're not being addressed it just it, it, it was it, it, bereavement now is a, a widely uh, supported issue in human life on the part of everyone involved clergy physicians therapists and friends and other families but it really wasn't uh, the case at that time because we were still completely, or almost completely, uh, kind of blind to the reality of death. Mm. And uh, the trend that was still in place that Americans deferred or bypassed their grief. It, it's, it's, a, it's a bigger problem now, frankly. But I know it better because I experienced it at that particular time when I was not too old but also not that young. Rabbi so, Ben Kamen, who yeah. is the author of The Blessing of Sorrow, Turning Grief into Healing. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, Rabbi Kamen, I, I, I'm going to switch a little bit to the Ten Commandments of Grief that you offer in The Blessing mm-hmm. of Sorrow. We'll be right back. so much insight uh, into the ways in which certainly we in this country really do our best to ignore uh, the fact of loss yes. um, right. and, and to make it smaller than it is. You know, I, I think about um, uh, employers, and, and, and I get the economics of it, but employers uh, will grant you uh, a particular number of days of 
off to grieve based on their perception of your connection with the person who has died. Yeah, um, that's true. And yeah. and if it's not, if it's a, a close friend, you kind of don't get any days, technically. Uh, if it's an aunt, well, you know, it's an aunt. But it's so, I mean, clearly there are things that we have, I would say, a lot of work to do, um, certainly in this country. In the Ten Commandments of Grief, the first one on your list, and, and, and we won't go through them all, but um, the first one is uh, do not defer your sorrow. Grieve openly, directly, and immediately. And that's wonderful advice, but I think it's stunning for some folks. Yeah, that's that's, that's a very interesting reaction you have or, or insight you have, and, I, and you're right. Uh, th- that's one of the reasons why I want to contribute to the literature of, of, of this subject because uh, people don't really understand the need for their 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 soul and even their body yes to to, to wrap the, the kind of arms that all these elements of us have around the situation and I'm concerned about it because it doesn't necessarily really result in a a proper and dignified and edifying goodbye to someone who went so much to us. It always means so much to us. I'm also concerned about it, and I had a personal experience in this, that if you defer grief or you act like it didn't happen, all kinds of grief. There's grief, obviously, we're primarily focused on uh, the issue of mortality, but we have grief after a job loss. We have grief after the end of a relationship. These are, these are all grief. It's loss. Grief is a response to loss. So the thing I'm concerned about is that, and I experienced this, as I said, you can actually get physically sick. Yes. And have some significant issues uh, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and even physically if you act like it isn't in there. Because it is in there, and it has to be processed out. I'm sorry to be so technical, but it, it just does. It's a, and, and many people, obviously like Kubler-Ross, have done tremendous help helpful work in helping us to achieve that. And as much as even Kubler-Ross says, not everything that I'm saying is going to work the same way for every person. Right. For example, the, the, the stages of grief. Mm-hmm. But the point is, if, if you have a powerful wound, a physical wound, on your body, you tend to it. You know it's dangerous. People, they take care of that. I hope. <laughs> but they, people, it's not our fault. We, we, we're we're culture differently in the, in the United States. I love that you made me think about the difference between the United States and Israel, for example. But it's pretty stark when it comes to these things. So four months later, when you've acted like, well, nothing happened, I'm fine, I'm stoic, and we've all been very stoic, those of us who really have achieved a, a longer age, we've all been very stoic when we remember Jacqueline Kennedy's dignity and her behavior when, when her husband was so ruthlessly murdered. But, you know, she did it for a reason uh, very admirable I think to help keep the country together because that was her response but it doesn't always work out and it does not work out and you know therapists will tell you clergy will tell you all kinds of professionals in the medical field will tell you that they have dealt with many people who were, became ill at a malaise of significance emotionally even physically, when they pretended like somebody who died didn't die. 
Correct. When you say that it's an experience that you yourself had, can you tell us a little bit about what went on for you? Of course, yeah. This was a case when uh, uh, my marriage ended in divorce a few years ago. And in response to it, I went into some kind of state of bravado and denial, which informed me a great deal not long after in terms of being able to speak more professionally and responsibly about these issues. So after that relationship ended, you know, I moved out, I moved to my own apartment in a different part of town, and I gathered my friends around me, uh, and uh, well, I'd go out every other night. we just have a lot of fun. Uh, I began a period of uh, like serial dating, which I never really enjoyed because it doesn't do anything for you when you're still too close to the actual wound or the invasion of your body site. So that was my reaction. I was, you know, like in a trance with it. Not, it didn't happen. I'm fine. I'm fine. Well, it doesn't think that having, you don't have to have somebody die to be in a situation where you're, you're really in pain and anguish. What I experienced was grief over the death of this marriage. And I so ignored it mm-hmm. and so tried to walk around it that a few months after, I actually fell into a, a profound uh, biological situational depression, it was called by the psychiatrist who tended to me for a long time and really helped me. Uh, you, you, you don't know, you can't function. You can't get up, you can't go down. You, you try to take a walk and you have a panic attack. Uh, I mean, it's unbelievable. And I can tell you as a personal witness to this, who's walked through this and survived, I can tell you that uh, any time, it's a very unusual for not to be the case that when you behave in this way, whatever this way means, however you defer the grief or uh, however you uh, pretend it didn't happen, then you have not grieved openly, you have not grieved directly, and you have certainly not grieved immediately, and the body and the mind will become dysfunctional. So I'm not preaching all these things or writing about these things because I think I'm real clever. I just think there's really a problem in our culture. I really do. I mean, we worship youth. We don't, we don't pretend like there isn't anything past youth. We, not all of us, but many people of all faiths, you know, will, and there will meaning, they think, will discard an aging parent or a grandparent into a home so that person can be with strangers. <clears throat> and ironically, strangers are the ones who are around that person more, much more than the family. Because we put grandma away. We don't have to worry about it. Now it's antiseptic. Well, you have no idea how people are lonely when they go through this, how rejected, exactly when they're dying. How do I know? I've heard them tell me this hundreds and hundreds of times. And some, in some cases, I have to talk to the family. I said, look, you, you got to come by. You, you got to you, you got, but I'll cry. I said, that's okay. Do you think anybody does not, whose who's terminal illness does not want to feel your empathy? You think you want, they want you not to be present? You got to be present. And for the person himself or herself, you have to, con- you have to, this requires other people's support. You have to confront right. the fact that the, uh, life is ending. And people uh, may say to you, and they do a lot, well, then you'll, you'll be there with mom and dad and this one and that one and your, your pet dog and all these things. It's all fine and good. It's well-meaning, but it's stupid. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's, it's a diversion. 
You know, when it comes to death, it's not about what you say. What we say is not our homeland. Mm. Real life is our homeland. We've got to stick in real life. And life means also death. There's, as been said many times over history, the two sides of the same coin. Yes. One of the uh, things that I often uh, find, and, and I know you do too, I'm, so I'm glad you were able to share your personal experience, is that when the loss is not a, uh, a physical death of someone, very often the people around you who are trying to be supportive will, first of all, not recognize how profound the loss is to you and will very often say, you can do this again, whatever it is. You can Mm -hmm. get married again. You can have another child. You can buy another pet. And that is so harmful. It is. We don't need to make promises to anybody when he or she is in grief. And again, you correctly point out that, you know, there's grief not about physical death, but at the end of the day, it's all grief. It certainly is most manifest when we have a physical death. There's no question about it. But I, I, like I told you, I, I experienced profound, sharp, destructive grief that I didn't address. Sometimes we think if it's not a physical death, then it doesn't really qualify as grief. Right. But to make them promise, uh, the, the better alternative is sit down and tell them, tell the person uh, who's grieving, I've been thinking a lot about you. I'm, I'm telling you, it works. You know, you don't say to somebody who's grieving or someone who's dying, how are you? I mean, well, how do you think they are? Right. <laughs> Instead, yeah, I mean, I, I, there are cases when people have protested and told people. I, I, I've seen it at a, at a house of mourning. Well, how do you think I'm, I am? I mean, I'm not good, okay? Do you get it? Obviously, that person who was grieving did get it by her protest, right. and that was wonderful and dignified. But um, it, it, there, 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 it comes down to it, the whole thing has to be processed out, and yet it's a, it's a combination of individual sensitivity and drawing from, if appropriate, theological history we have, family narratives. But we, we just um, do not need to be told what we should do or not do until we're asked. So when we're sitting there and we tell them, I'm thinking about you, that's all you have to say. And it's uh, true. begin to talk. It's true. Yeah. You it's, have been thinking about it's them. truth. Yeah, well said, Pam. Yeah, I never even thought of that. You're just talking the truth. Right. There's nothing fake about this. Yeah. Just before the break, we were talking about um, the the actual business, if you will, of planning and going through a funeral. And you said you learned so much. What were some yeah. of the things that you learned that really kind of surprised you? I immediately come to the realization that uh, I 
it was very clear to me in taking this course that the, that many funeral homes um, are not really that concerned as they should be with the actual grieving process. Mm. I'm not being cynical here. I mean, it's the way we are in America, too. It doesn't make it right or wrong, but it, it's the way it is. I mean, I, I frankly was appalled when uh, the instructor we had in this class, who just loves being in this business because he's making a lot of money in what he does, he reminded us that don't forget the first three uh, the first three letters of funeral is fun. <gasps> oh my! Yeah, I do mention this in the book, and I hope everyone knows about it because it was it was appalling, and I found it's not it's not uncommon, uh, and in fact, it's part of the lingo. And I, I was profoundly uh, just disappointed and shocked at that. But I, I stuck with that thing because I, 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 what else am I going to find out? Right. Um, the, the, the funeral business is huge in this country. And the, the biggest uh, markup and so forth is the, uh, the, the casket business. I mean, the showrooms. They're not inappropriate, but it, it's kind of like, it's like going to an auto showroom. I mean, you know, I, I, uh, I've toured many funeral homes. I remember years ago I visited with a funeral director and interviewed him, and this actually is in, in this book, The Blessing of Sorrow. A very good man, a very fine man. Uh, this is a Jewish funeral home. He really had great respect, not only for the, 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 uh, the items required, the, the things we need to do and feel in terms of grief, because you had Jewish in the show, man. You were so... But he also really understood that uh, it was it's not easy for people to deal with the, some of these finances. And yet, because he was in business, he showed me. I wasn't looking to buy anything that day. Uh, we have the casket here. It had a very fancy name, like the Gold Regal model. And it was close to $20,000. And he said, people like this one because it's the same casket model that President Kennedy was buried in. And I'm thinking, what difference does that make to a person who's grieving their own? I mean, okay. I mean, the, I've I never heard a Jew say to me, "By the way, my my loved one is buried in the same casket President Kennedy was." But when you're grieving and impressionable and vulnerable, they not all of them, but they'll move in because everybody's working on a commission, and we are not denigrating the funeral business because it is a retail thing. We're just got to be aware. We choose our dentists very carefully. We choose, you know, what stores we like to shop in for groceries. We, we certainly choose our cars very judiciously. We choose what teams we like to watch in Major League Baseball. But we just are somehow, we're like smitten with going to the, immediately to the ex-funeral home. And maybe that's the one that the service, the family before, brings somebody with you uh-huh. who's a little more objective at that moment so they can protect you from being gouged. <laughs> but it often does. Well, and, and there's, a, a, again, there, there there's so much that you say that is plainly written. It's gently written. It's, it's a gentle guide, um, if you will, to the process of turning grief into healing, to actually understanding uh, that as you experience 
the sorrow, it really can be turned into blessings. Dr. Uh, Rabbi Ben Kamen, got your whole, whole title out there. I'm so pleased to have you uh, take the time to join us today. I'm delighted, and I thank you for the opportunity to share these concerns of mine um, in issues of life and death. They're, they're very significant, and as we've discussed, they can have either a positive effect or a damaging effect in the long run. Rabbi Kamen, there is a website um, for your book, yes? Well, it can be ordered through my website, which is very simply benkamen.com, B-E-E-N-K-A-M-I-N.com. All my books are there. And it's, on, it's, uh, it's being released July 10th, and it's available on Amazon already. Uh, and uh, some bookstores. So there, there's lots of ways to get at the information that you offer in The Blessing of Sorrow. And I'm also going to oh, suggest totally. that folks take a look at spiritbehindthenews.com, which has several of your writings uh, that I particularly appreciated. Again, Dr. Rabbi Ben Kamen, thank you so much for joining us today on Mind Talk. I certainly thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You as well. And folks, thank you for joining me on this edition of Mind Talk. It is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a mental health, medical health, or other professional. You can always listen to Mind Talk on demand by going to mindtalk.org. I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening today, so send me an email. That's Pamela, P-A-M-E-L-A, at mindtalk.org. Your questions or comments are also very much welcomed. And remember always, if it's unacceptable, then it's unacceptable. You take care. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.